I don't think humanity is capable of being um, self-governing. And <laughs> at this point, we're fucked. Uh, so, uh, which is also like probably why I act the way I do on stage. I'm like, it's not nihilism, but it's just like some sort of like weird, absurd frustration in, in, in art performance, because what else do we have? Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we, we drew, drew the map. map. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Um, I'm very uh, excited and very pleased to welcome our guest this evening, or this morning, uh, Justin Pearson. Thank you. Of all the bands, um, I know your current project is, uh, I think, let me get this right, Dead Cross? Yeah, yeah. That's the the more recent one. Yeah. Yeah. But there's so, so many uh, band names I could uh, we could go through. Do, yeah, do, do I mean, you have like mainly, a... mainly I've been known for the Locust. Um, yeah, but but yeah, that that band is not not active anymore. But yeah, I want to say that I'm shocked that I'm even on this podcast with you guys. And I know it's not, and I don't want to make it weird, but I'll just say like for the Locust, you two and your guys's resumes have been a massive, massive influence on the people in the Locust. And the world would never be able to make that correlation if you listen to the locust and then listen to the stuff that that you guys have done and and are doing but i'll just say that like it has definitely been a crazy influence so I'll, i just want to get that out of the way oh thank you for that well that that's that's very kind of you to say both me and budgie are blushing so you know <laughs> yeah so so where where are you justin at the moment which which part of the world i'm in san diego i'm mainly always in san diego so i'm i think oh okay yeah. Yeah. justin you saw you saw the creatures play down in um iguanas in tijuana the, yeah Th that place is was gnarly that i mean it was tijuana is is a weird city and iguanas like in the 90s was pretty insane um we had we'd run out of songs and and the crowd was going wild as you say, it's a pretty crazy place. I seem to remember a balcony, like a like a horseshoe-shaped balcony, all round the side of, above the stage, and people were literally swan diving off the balcony. Jumping, like, like, <laughs> yeah, three stories high. Like, uh, it was crazy. It, it's yeah. ridiculous. Yep, and they're just like going for it, you know. And we were underneath the stage. That's where the dressing room was. So you could see the floorboards of the stage and people were up there. We thought we better get out there and do something else. So I kind of pretended I was like, well, I kind of channeled Iggy Pop, you know, tore my shirt off, ran out to the microphone. <laughs> Su Susie gets on the drums and goes, Bubba Dabba, Bubba Dabba, Bubba Dabba, because that's the wow. beat that Susie plays. Bubba right. Dabba, Bubba Dabba, like Palmoli from the Slits. Yeah. And, and I'm going to the mic and thinking, I, I, I just like scream because I don't know how to sing. I don't. I didn't have anything planned. Um, anyway, we then we switch roles. I think back. So yeah. perhaps you blink and you miss it. And I think we were able to play uh, right now, which is like the the song, the only song that wasn't on like a, a bunch of me playing sequences and stuff. We just played it like drums and vocals live. Right. 
And then I came off and I wanted a drink because I was going to have that celebratory drink. We've done the whole tour. We traveled all around the, the States. We got down to the border and they'd run out of tequila. They'd run oh, out of tequila. That, that sounds like not possible in Tijuana that they would ever run out of tequila. You know, I, it might have been for my own good. They may have just been saying, Budgie wants tequila. Get out of here yeah. now. Just tell him it's run out. <laughs> But yeah. Justin, your arm is encased in a black Velcro ripped. Yo, know, nice, nice bit of webbing going on. It's kind of a bit. <laughs> it's a, um, it's a just little... a brace. It's it's not. I mean, it does kind of look. It does have like a Glenn Danzig kind of like vibe. It, it's out. a very it's... cool looking brace. It's like it's you know, a bit corset going on there. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. Well, it, they, I went to the doctor and they're like. They had just about put a cast on. I was like, "You gotta be fucking kidding me, man!" There's no way. And so they they yeah. they, they put this on, which is very so, nice. Well, how did how did what happened? Yeah, I have this band called Death Club, and and I'm and I just sing in it. And uh, the the PA was garbage at this club. It was an awesome club. Uh, the venue was great. Everyone was cool, but the PA was not cool. And the speaker, the monitor didn't work. And I just I just kind of like picked it up theatrically to, to like hold it or like to even hear if it was working because I was like I'm pretty sure that I, I just should not be singing and then I just ended up like you know like people were like slam dancing and stuff anyhow I, I think I just threw it and I and I tore the ligament of my thumb and it was crazy because I was on tour yeah. and like you know I couldn't even I couldn't start the van key I couldn't turn the key to the ignition like I was like oh this is pretty bad and then a couple weeks later, I was like, well, I can move it. And then I just went like three months and then finally went to the doctor. And they're like, yeah, dude, your finger's fucked, man. You should have came in a long time ago. Yeah. Ah, so. We should probably explain to people who people who don't go on stage that I think, Justin, you're talking about these huge monitor wedges that we uh, use up there. And they kind of look like, you know, they're, they're a first size, but they weigh a lot. They're heavy beasts. Yeah. These things, you can jump on them, stand on them, tip them over and they'll still hold your weight right i use them mainly for jumping off of but but occasionally to hear myself it's when the <laughs> adrenaline's pumping the adrenaline's rushing through and uh, and then you all you need to do is add a little frisson of discontent with the uh, equipment Justin, let me let me let me ask you how 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 much is when I see you you know I I, I see uh, film footage of performance uh, of the bands you're in and it feels looks quite it looks aggressive. There's a mm. lot of energy bordering on what seems like anger. But I was wondering because you're you know you're, you're sitting smiling and. You don't look like you've got <laughs> the world's problems on your shoulder. Um, it was like when I, I, I yeah, I kind of sense it. It seems like a bit more um, real in a way than when I saw an early Nine Inch Nails performing a Lollapalooza, mm. where they were. It's like I think, how could they be that angry at four in the afternoon when the sun's shining? <laughs> you know, uh, I could give you some good reasons for being angry at four in the afternoon. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Playing at four in the afternoon is 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 problem is problematic. I would be angry about just that. I think that's probably yeah. what it was. They were really angry at being yeah. on four in the afternoon. At the, yeah. <laughs> so they had like strobes. Like four in the afternoon and being nine inch nails. That's terrible. You know, like yeah. No. 
Well, okay, so you just threw out like this super loaded question, and and it, I think it, it's very, it's like, it's like it, you almost kind of like ask like one of those questions, like, what's the meaning of life? And you're like, good luck <laughs> like, answering yeah. that. Yeah. So, like, I think it's a, a great question because uh, people do kind of look at like more aggressive type of music and think it has this nihilistic element to it, and and it, and first of all, there's like the quote that I that I that I like to cite. They're saying like, I think the opposite of love isn't hate i think it's apathy right. and i and, and i think that's i think that's a big problem because when you are i mean when you are aggressive or you have aggressive music it doesn't inherently mean you are like a violent or aggressive person and i mean fuck I'll, after we're done with this podcast i'm gonna go to yoga and i'm gonna go hang out with my dog and i'm gonna try to do things that are you know peaceful right. um because those are things that i enjoy and i get you know um something out of but like look at the world we live in i mean we have to be able to um, get that energy and that anxiety and that and that angst out in, in some some way and so if we do it through art i think that's really important and you know it's kind of weird because throughout my you know my early childhood and, in, and into my 20s and 30s and even into my 40s um now like i've always kind of wished that i could play music like the stuff that you guys do i mean like growing up with Susie and the cure and stuff like those were things that I, I, I would have, I mean, I, not that I would have preferred to rather have done like right. stuff that is more um, nuanced. I just felt like me and maybe the people that I would associate with just kind of were like, ah, and like, that was what happened, you know, like right. musically. And right. I mean, I do see like the sort of nihilistic side of, of rock or punk and stuff. And, and I do like Nine Inch Nails a lot, you know, but, but I do, but I do think that it can be kind of um, misrepresented, I guess, yeah. you know, cause I, I, I want to be smart and I want to be, um, calculated with what I do. And I, and I don't want to be a, a jerk or right. aggressive for no reason. Yeah. I think actually you, you brought up a really good point there because I remember, you know, starting off in like 76, 77, that, that quote, you know, about, uh, you know, the opposite of love's not hate, it's apathy. It was absolutely absolutely true for where we came from it wasn't that people hated us they were just apathetic towards everything and we were like why why can't we do something why can't we get something going you know and it didn't change I went back to the town a few years ago when I was writing my book and I walked past this pub that we always used to walk past and people would sort of scowl at us because we had you know the funny jackets on and you know sticky up hair and things and it's the same people sitting outside. I mean, obviously, they're, you know, they're probably the children of the children of the people. <laughs> yeah. But they're doing the same thing. They're, com they're not even bothering to complain about anything. They're just totally apathetic, you know. And it, it, it's like I laughed because I thought, you know, oh, my gosh, the more things change, the more they stay the same because it was exactly, you know, the reason we started. Yeah. You know, love and hate, they fit on, you, on your knuckles if you have a tattoo, right? But apathy wouldn't fit. Man, I saw this guy. He had the word "punk" tattooed on his forehead, and he was and he was passed out. It was at this anarchist convention at, in Long Beach in '90 or '89. Yeah. Anyhow, he he was passed out, and someone had taken a tattoo gun and changed the word "punk" to "drunk." <laughs> and I was oh. like, "Oh man, that's crazy. That's that like really embodies that apathetic uh, side of everything yeah. that I that I want to avoid 100. Right. It was fucking crazy. Never could happen in this day and age. But 
I was there to sort of learn and to connect with other people. And then there were these assholes that just had like spiked hair and like were just drinking. And yeah. they were there for like punk rock, not for ethics. Seems a little bit of an oxymoron, actually, doesn't it? You know, like the totally. Anarchist, yeah, totally. anarchist convention and newcomers punk. I mean, I, I think that there's a definite scholastic element to it, but I don't think humanity is capable of being um, self-governing. And <laughs> at this point, we're fucked. Uh, so, <laughs> which is also like probably why I act the way I do on stage. I'm like, it's not nihilism, but it's just like some sort of like weird, absurd frustration in, in, in art performance, because what else do we have? Mm. I mean, and two, again, like, I feel like we, we have to look at like the lineage of things, because for me growing up and like seeing... I don't mean I don't want to I don't want to like pin down something on like someone like Sid Vicious, but like wearing like that that like swastika T-shirt was like kind of a, a fucked up weird a weird angle. But I get it. I got what it was then. Mm. So so like for me, I was like, well, what can we do that can be reactionary and 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 kind of get something out? You know, even mm. like in the '80s, like when hardcore became a a, right. a a thing, and like seeing that film Decline of the Western Civilization. Yeah. You know, like listening to these kids in that film talk made a lot of sense to me. It was using that frustration and trying to add intellect to it or or maybe calculate what was being dealt with right, right. there's a few really interesting things i'd like to pick i'd like to pick up on which is um first of all you mentioned the swat sticker as sid vicious uh, sid was the drummer in the band i joined <laughs> i know okay can we talk about that in itself because <laughs> That is fucking crazy that he what was he able to drum? Did he actually was he actually like a decent drummer? I think he played for one gig with Susie and the Banshees as they performed their debut gig. So there was Susie Severin, Marco Pironi, who went on to be with Adam and the Ants. Yeah, Adam and, 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 and Sid was on the drums because uh, I think for that moment, the Flowers of Romance that he was trying to start yeah. with somebody else wasn't happening. Um, but then Sid promptly left. But something I saw today at the Bill Grundy interview on British television, where the Sex Pistols had jumped in the studio on a very late last-minute invitation to replace Queen, who had failed to right. show up. And there was a limo outside waiting for them. They thought, maybe we shouldn't take a limo. It's not really cool. But they did. They went anyway, and they went straight from the limo into the wow. studio. And Bill Grundy apparently had had a few drinks. Yeah. And he was baiting them. Yeah. And uh, the guy behind, he was part of Susie and Severin's circle of people that were called the Bromley Contingent. Right. He had a SWAT sticker on his arm. Everybody phoned in and started complaining about Steve Jones then going, you fucker, you this, yeah, you that, yeah, you right. know, the swear yeah. words that came on national television. But yeah. nobody said anything about the SWAT sticker on the guy's right. arm that was standing behind Rotten. Right. You know, because Susie also was taken to task for also sporting a SWAT sticker really early when she was being mm. photographed and probably wasn't even in a band. But I was thinking today, we were so close to the Second World War. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. We, we grew up with all this imagery. And it was a bit like taking it back. It had nothing to do with us, and yet it was a big part of our growing up. Yeah. But it's, it's like, how, how do we, as you say, wake up people, wake up... Yeah. There was two pivotal moments there because that Bill Grundy thing overnight turned half the population against us, you know? Like, instantaneously, people would chase you down the street for, for wearing safety pins in your jacket or something because, you know, suddenly punk was, was like, you know, anti-everything they stood for. 
Before that, people would just sort of laugh or shout at you. But, you know, just because that one TV show became really violent. And then I suppose the mm. other pivotal moment for that was the Notting Hill Gate Carnival, which was, you know, this big carnival in West London. And it's it's the picture on the back of the first Clash album of everybody running away from the police. And I was like 17 and I went to the carnival with Pearl and... Uh, you know, it was like mainly peaceful, but then then there's this big sort of police presence and stuff, and it just turned into this huge riot. And that set the scene for the latter parts of the 70s. You know, those two pivotal moments, I, I know, drove us as the cure to, to get going and mm. do something and, and go somewhere and yeah, not just I mean, be apathetic. So very powerful. Well, because it's great, too, because you would think of like when people are indifferent towards your art, then, then maybe you're not succeeding, you know? Like, if you get a positive reaction, great. If you get a negative one, that's also great, as long as people are paying attention. The people that you were around influenced how your performance or your music or your writing came out. And strangely, even though, as you mentioned, the slits, and I knew the slits before I joined them, that they were kind of chaos and anarchistic in terms of how they perceived it. And so I joined people and the Banshees as well I joined, and yet there was a definite, like, this is what we do. You know, there's no guitar solos. There's no kind of fancy stuff going on. <laughs> and yet we didn't go fully, like, flat-out punk. Definitely there was a lot of, like, energy in other areas. And um, I keep harking on about Wire and their first album, Pink Flag. Mm. And there was a track called 12XU, which everybody picked up on as, like, the punk anthem at the time. It came out around the same time as Nevermind the Bollocks. But the rest of the album is poetry and and uh, lots of boundaries, like little like self-imposed limitations. Like if it only takes two minutes to get what we're going to say, then that's it. There's no kind of mid-late rum rumble, you know. It's concise and succinct. Right. And as the part of the Banshees, when we were trying to get the mood going, we loved just making sound, you know. Uh, but we had to kind of forge that sound into a kind of confines of a pop song, you know, really. Right. That was our kind of goal. And it kind of gave us a, an inner conflict, which you kind of described the other way around. Your thinking wanted you to be more popular. <laughs> Do you see what I'm getting at? I'm, I don't know if I've put that correctly. I mean, it's interesting, though, that you that you frame it like that, because for me, growing up and hearing like both of your guys' earlier work, mm. there was a lot of like strange time signatures. There was right. definitely strange tones and, and like uh, chords and stuff. Those are really, really informative for a lot of people that were younger than you that were like latching on to music, looking up mm. to people that like came before them and thinking like, there's these insanely weird tones or, or, or just sounds or structures and or beats or even I don't know the weird delivery like it, it's it was it was I don't want to say it's non-musical but it was redefining of, of music theory or or what was typical and not to bash on the Sex Pistols because I think that that was one of the that's one of the most influential bands in my life but I think it wasn't until like later on like when PIL happened where it, right. it broke away from like rock and pop structure and, yeah. and started just using sounds and just weird shit that was more artistic than musical and I think that was really important on a, on a larger scale because even the first wire record still had that it was very jagged and angular and yeah. felt it felt tense 
Yeah, no, you're 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 right. I mean, when you start a band, the first thing you do is is you look at the people that you like, and and you try and write something like that, you know. And rather than making a carbon copy of something, we we sat down and worked out the things we didn't like. Like Roger was saying, like no long guitar solos. Oh, we don't like that. So we're not going to put that in any of our songs. Um, no big flashy, you know, fills and that. Well, that was fine because I couldn't bloody play them anyway. So <laughs> it was, you know, it, it sort of suited me. And we we played around our limitations. We thought, okay, the, this is what we can do as a three-piece. And we'll write the songs using that rather than, than trying to expand outwards from it. We, we, we closed down things. There were a lot of things when we started playing that were definitely non-cure. Things that, you know... We didn't even have to look at each other and say, well, you know, you shouldn't do that. We just kind of intuitively knew we didn't want to do it quite that way. And so that naturally, you know, turns out your limitations, you know, you like, you think, oh, well, I'd like to make a record just like low. Mm -hmm. And you can't because, you know, you don't have Tony Visconti in the studio or whatever. And, you know, you're not David Bowie. So you don't do it that way, but you do something and it becomes comes your sound. And so I think that was really half the thing that made it sound different. And I don't even know if we were as aware as that at 19, but we don't want to be the guys down the pub playing the, you know, the uh, hard rock solo. But even like if you're starting a band and you're like, this is my focal point or this is what I want to sound like, you have all this other stuff that's in your subconscious that's going to creep in mm. that you're not even aware of. So a good example, like Budgie brought up, there's a new Dead Cross record coming out and there's so much cure sounding riffs on that record that are just insane. I mean, it is very heavily influenced by the cure, but we have the drummer that was in Slayer on it. So like you can't necessarily have a cure sounding record with insane drums on it, but you have something new, but that was like the point, like let's make it sound kind of, dark and goth and yeah. and have these like discordant chords and have it be spooky but then there's like ripping double kick all <laughs> over it and then it becomes something completely different yeah. man i remember like getting both of your early records and yeah. trying to think like where did this come from? Like, what was before it? To me, I, I don't know. It's just, it just seemed so I weird. Thought, I, I, I know for a fact that when I joined, they were mm. touring. This is when right. me and Lowell met on the Join Hands tour. And one of their songs was called Placebo Effect, which has got this really kind of funky bass line. And it's the bass line right. to Love Hangover by Diana Ross. Mm. And it's dance music. It's it's like mid mid seventies dance yeah. music, uh, late seventies uh, disco. Uh, Sylvester's in there. Sylvester was like putting albums out at the same yeah. time as Low right. and Kraftwerk, Trans Europe Express. Yeah. Disco was such a big part yes, of uh, our beats when we were getting drummers were getting yeah. a little bit more robotic, and then Kraftwerk took it to the next level. But also feeding into that was my brother's generation would have been, okay, I'll, I'll mention one. It's Jimi Hendrix, Gypsy Eyes. Yeah. And it's that, the simplest drum beat. I just stole that bass drum and hi-hat. 
And I think John Bonham used it in Bronyar Stomp. But it's just that. You just go, I love that. Say, when I first found something like Hawkwind, and, and I was a fan of Lemmy before Motorhead, and they were kind of like hippies, and there was a bit of hippie stuff still kind of hanging around. But it was just that the fact that they were really making songs out of a very loose structure, but it was just like ripping around. Yeah. Whether we like it or not, it featured in uh, within the, uh, the self-imposed restrictions of making... A, three-minute pop songs that we're still trying to do. If that resonates... It does, but I think it's like the complete opposite of chaos because it is extremely and absurdly structured. Um, you know, Dave, like Dave as a drummer, or even like with The Locust, like with Gabe Serbian, like those two drummers were so precise with every little simple, even the ride, where the little bell hits are like one-handed cymbal grabs mm. or whatever, whatever it was. Mm. Like those are super important. You know, I, I mean, a lot of times, you know, it's like when my mom hears it, she's like, it's just noise or you're all screaming or whatever, you know, and that's fine. But it is very, very calculated. And I'm sure you experienced that. I mean, I, I would see it like, you know, especially with like the Bill Grundy thing. Like, I'm sure everyone's like that, that band's garbage. And those, you know, all those bands are garbage and like, it's just noise yeah. or not music. And I mean, it was only the start of like a massive, massive change. So I think that I think that it just takes a minute because if we don't, if we can't understand it easily, mm. then we we kind of look at it as unstructured, or we don't, we don't, we can't, we right. can't do the equation, you know. So that is an interesting thing yeah. because there's been times where I would sit and you know on tour in the van, we'd be driving and I'd, I'd listen to like certain songs where you're playing drums on, and I'm like that's not like what time? That's like a seven eight like in a four four structure or like some or like why is the hi hat like hitting? on these like odd signatures and it's so awesome because i don't know if you thought that out or if you just played a beat and something fell over it and it wasn't you know in four four it wasn't you know like seven eight or whatever so it was it was interesting to kind of see that and 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 to try to like pick it apart mm. oh. interesting that you said did what did we pre-plan it um i i listened a lot over the years to my first professional studio recording release was probably with the slits the first album and the first track is i think it's the six four and we'd never never discussed anything no. about yeah. time signatures it's just the yeah. way it came out yeah and it, it tickles me to this day that that the, the, the slits were kind of written off before they started that they didn't know how to play music and without any prompting or any tuition, we went into the studio and the first song we laid down, the first track on the album, yeah. is in an odd time signature, a time signature that's not 4-4. Four four. Yeah. And Ari Ariana just was able to phrase instantly. Yeah. Susie yeah. was phrasing a 5-4. A yeah. In Overground, we did it with an orchestra and the guys were saying, wow, this is a really good rendition of a 5-4 with the emphasis in the right place. Now I'm going like, hmm. Cool. And then you start, you realize that you're ahead of yourself, you know, doing things that you're not even aware you're doing. It's interesting. We, we've all subscribed, you know, to the, the, the straight jacket of, you know, the scale from the piano and been locked into that for hundreds of years mm. where people played music since the beginning of time you know and they didn't have like oh you, you know you better hit that 
log in, you know, for for time, you know, otherwise we're not going to be able to sing with you, you know. And my friend's like an Indian musician, you know, and he said, most of those guys, they just sort of like they tune arbitrarily to each other. Nowadays, they do it on an iPad, you know, instead of the little box. And um, I remember going to see King Sunny Adi years ago, you know, and he had like 10 drummers on the stage and none of them started at the same time. But it didn't matter, you know, because it, yeah. it was just beautiful. So, you know, who's to say what's what's right and what's wrong musically? You know, sure. I mean, really. it's it's art, so it's subjective. But I do wonder if, like, a lot of the criticism that you were talking about, Budgie, was like because it was women in the bands. Sure. You know, I wonder if that was a thing because it is very misogynistic, and that could have been like, oh, they're just women; they don't know what they're doing. Especially vocalists. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sure there was that kind of like sexist, patriarchal bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but fuck, look at history proved them all wrong. You know, all, all the critics wrong, you know, uh, like- It's, those, it's like... such a, a, a big part of my uh, life in music is female vocalists. And I'm fortunate to to join a, an, an all female band. Sure. And it's a, it's a truly quite an experience because it's it, the chemi chemistry is so different. You've really got to be very aware but um, I, I did some recording with uh, Indigo Girls and I remember being on tour with them and they travel with their Martin guitars and they have to know way much more when they're talking to the tech guys, usually guys, maybe that's changing a bit now. They had to shout out that, you know, I need this frequency lowering in this way. Right. Because they had to be perceived to be, you know, smarter than the guys. Yeah. To be taken seriously. Uh, yeah, it's right. It still is. Uh, it, it seems to fluctuate where you find something that changes that perception. And then it, as soon as they can, mainstream tries to revert back to the status quo that they've designed. You know, When I first met yourself, actually, and, and Sue, to me, as, as you know, I was, what, 20 years old, it was a revelation. I watched every show on, on that tour. To me, she was like the proto feminist for punk you know and and i i watched how she projected herself every night and how she controlled the stage and she controlled the audience and she got her respect that way and and i think you know looking back on it it must have been extremely hard because we were at the end of you know a very misogynistic uh 1970s thing you know the hard rock it was like the way they looked at women was completely different but um, she was really a pioneer, so in that way, and uh, I, I never forgot that. Never forgot it because it was, you know, it was like mm. a, a template for so many other people coming up after her. You know, mm. huge, huge influence. This might be a weird tangent because, but I think this might be a really important point because I think that people always will say like, "What are your influences?" and they want you to list off, you know, like, you know, the birthday party or PIL. They want you to say the bands, but to me, I think what's more important to me asking someone what are your influences or what are your non-musical influences like what are the things that are in your world or in your life that have influenced you to want to create strange or you know angular or you know odd whatever like it's not like how did you become a drummer to make weird time signatures without knowing it it's just like why did you like that you know like i always reference skateboarding and like thrasher skateboarding and stuff like skateboarding culture in the 80s yeah. was a really big important thing for me yeah. musically but you wouldn't really think about it in that way you know but also too like going back to the comment about like both both you guys talking about seeing Susie and her being a pioneer i think it is really really 
one more really important because for me <laughs> as a as a when I was growing up a young male like trying to like figure out um, gender and trying to like understand um, gender equality and see things like an artist like Susie redefining like stereotypes and also just becoming a very strong individual um, not representative well kind of, of of music and culture but like just this figure that was demanding and it was really important to see that and it made its subconscious um, way into everything that I was doing as a younger person and especially right. with the locust and stuff like seeing how she looked and dressed the the importance for gender equality in what people would see like punk rock is trying to be or is supposed to be a progressive movement where it's not as progressive as, as it should be so it just I want to say like the non-musical things that Susie did were fucking massive for a lot of people um, musically or culturally yeah non-musical influences that shaped us you know for me a lot, a lot of like american women poets that that popped out of me you know sylvia plath and sexton all those people they informed my thinking as a young man and so therefore what i was thinking about on stage was that and how to how to play that how to play that emotion you know that far more of a of an influence than I don't know. I, I don't, there's a lot of musical things as well, but you're right. You have to have a whole uh, feeling to put it across, and that's what mm. that's the most important thing to me is always been. How does it feel? How does how does it make you feel? Because if it doesn't make you feel anything, what's what's the point? You know. Yeah, but the but the non musical aesthetic is always very informative to people yeah. without you actually it's not it's a narrative that you're not it's not your musical narrative it's not the it's not the primary thing you're trying to say right. but you but it's you mm. and people pick up on that yeah. stuff you know i mean i think that like early cure stuff blew my fucking mind and like seeing like how robert smith dressed and looked and even like you know the title boys don't cry it was so strange to me as a child and it was such right. an important right. thing dealing with you know what toxic masculinity or whatever you know like i think all those things are really important and really made a huge impact without people knowing uh that it was going to be that impact it was certainly never uh, a thing that we looked at as like oh this is our career you know and then we take off the funny clothes and we go home and we be this we're always 24 7 that's who we were and that's who we yeah. are still today yeah. you know and it's like yeah okay we're a lot older but it's like the same way I feel about things, you know, they, they've progressed, hopefully, but they've, they, they still come from that place. And uh, so that was super important. Like, you know, that, all that, the punk revolution at that time changed, changed everything for us, but we were, we were right on the cusp, both me and Budger, we were right on the cusp. So uh, we tried to drag the good things from the past. Cause you know, you can't just throw everything out and go, Oh, no, it's all crap. You know? I mean, I'm sure we did at some point, you know, we just said, oh, no, we never heard any of those songs. We never listened to any of that. But we bring some of the good stuff in and, you know, keep the new stuff that's good and you evolve, you know, it's about about evolving. For me, like uh, observing punk shift into like new wave or, or even no wave, just adding more 
um, you know, I use air quotes here, non-musical elements to, to what people are creating was really, really important. Even today, like seeing craft work, shit's wild. I mean, that they were starting in the 60s, you know, which is ahead of all, everybody. And I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I'm, I'm grateful that that happened on this planet. And I think had a huge influence even beyond musical. Um, I think with, with cinema and, and visual art and stuff like that, I think it was so important. Yeah. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas Kay. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.